Turn over to John chapter 14, please. John chapter 14, and we'll read verses 1 through 7 as we continue our Harmony of the Gospels. John 14, verses 1 through 7. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings on this time of studying your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring not only light to this text, but light to our eyes, the ability to see. We ask for a change of our hearts as well, that you would make hardened hearts soft and cause them to receive the word implanted which is able to save the soul. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Do not let your heart be troubled. Ever struggled with a troubled heart? Ever been fearful of the future? Ever had your life turned upside down? Ever had your expectations smashed? Ever seen something that looked like it would be successful turn into seeming defeat? Trouble is among the most common things in the world. It's as common as the air that we breathe. And no one is exempt from troubles. It comes to us in so many different directions and for so many different reasons. In our travel through the Gospels, we've come to a life-altering moment in the disciples' lives. They've spent the last three years following Jesus wherever He went. They were in awe of the things that he said and did. They listened to his every word. They did the things he told them to do. There was never a man like this. For he wasn't merely a man. This man was the Son of God. This man was the Messiah. He was the Christ, the promised one. And now here on the evening of the Passover, Jesus spoke of his own departure And he described that his departure would involve suffering. Even when we look back on the cross, we mourn from our perspective, knowing that Resurrection Sunday is just a couple days away, right? A Good Friday, we're already thinking, yeah, but Sunday's on the way, right? We're thinking that way. Imagine for Jesus' disciples, he's speaking of dark things, and their hearts are troubled. Jesus, at this very evening, spoke that one of his own disciples would betray him. One sitting at that very table. He then told the rest of them that the rest of you will all desert me. You'll all abandon me. Peter says, everybody else but not me, Lord. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, this very night, three times you're going to deny me before 
the rooster crows. Shocking. These disciples are experiencing deep heartache, and Jesus knew it. And certainly what they were about to go through would involve even deeper heartache and troubles. Their hearts are troubled because they're experiencing a flood of different emotions. They're saddened at the thought of something horrible happening to their master, their teacher, Jesus. They're bewildered that how could we all desert him? They're probably angry. Someone among us is going to betray him. They're distraught at the thought that they're going to be left alone. We left everything to follow you, Jesus. We spent three years listening to every word, and now you're saying you're going away? I mean, maybe they're even feeling exasperated because their hopes that were associated with the coming of the Messiah was that he was going to set up his kingdom. He was going to bring all wrongs to right. He's going to judge all wickedness, and he's going to bring God's people home. What are these things that you're saying, Jesus? Jesus' words and his manner are communicating something different. Jesus is saying things are going to get worse before they get better. Something huge was about to happen. Something dark. And would that be the end of the story? Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the events that are about to transpire. He provides teaching and comfort to his men. As I look at this text, the, the verse that really comes off the page at us is John 14, 6, because most of us have memorized that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by through me. Um, and we put that in bumper stickers, and it's one of those verses. And so I felt like, okay, my whole sermon is just going to be about that verse. But reading that verse in context, we get a little bit of a different feel. Yes, that's something that Jesus has to say, but... It's flowing out of compassion and care and concern that he has for his disciples. Think about it for just a moment. Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. This very night he's going to be betrayed. This very night he's going to be arrested. He's going to get a, you know, a sham of a trial and he's going to be crucified. And it's not just the horrific elements of crucifixion, which certainly perhaps you've seen movies or heard described before. But it's the fact that he's about to encounter the full wrath of his heavenly father. Upon himself. For the sins of those who would trust in him. If there's ever a moment when we say, here's the moment for Jesus' disciples to rise up and comfort Jesus, this is the moment. But instead, we see that his disciples are the ones in need of comfort. And Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. And so he consoles their hearts. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Then this is how it has been from the very beginning. Jesus came with a mission that was consumed with healing our hurts, calming our fears, forgiving our sins, granting us life. He offers help for heart trouble here. He gives help for heart trouble. And the medicine that Jesus gives includes at least three assurances. Three assurances. And our points will... Roll around these. There's three assurances that Jesus gives his disciples to help them with the heartache that's going on inside. And while they certainly were applicable and helpful to his disciples at the, at the eve of this climactic moment in history, they can then certainly, if they were helpful then, they'll be helpful to us in the heartaches that we encounter. The first one, the first assurance is, you can trust me. You can trust me. The second assurance is, I will bring you home. 
I will bring you home. And the third assurance is, I am everything you need. I am everything you need. Let's look at the first assurance together. Jesus says to his disciples, you can trust me. In this life, you will have troubles. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. You can't avoid troubles in this life. We live in a fallen world. Yes, a world originally created good, but with the onset of sin, a world that is most definitely fallen. As Lewis would say, we don't have to go any further than our own hearts to see that, right? Yeah, the problem is out there, but yes, the problem is also within us. We live in a fallen world, and we all know the dreadful effects of sin. Do you remember this, dear brother or sister in Christ? You cannot prevent troubles from coming your way. So don't be surprised when they come your way. It's kind of crazy how we get with that. Like, how dare this happen to me? You know, why am I dealing with troubles? Jesus says, don't be surprised. Just think about it this way. If the one whom we follow was treated so horribly by the world, then we can expect the same sort of treatment that the world gave him. You can't just say, I'm not going to encounter troubles because you will. And you don't keep out troubles by meditating long upon them. (laughs) Thinking more about the troubles doesn't help, does it? But neither does ignoring the troubles. That doesn't get the job done either. I'm sure we've all heard Bobby McFerrin's famous song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. He says, truly, in every life we'll have some trouble. But when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry. Be happy. Listen to the next verse, though. Ain't got no place to lay your head? Somebody came and took your bed? Don't worry. Be happy. The landlord say your rent is late? He may have to litigate? Don't worry. Be happy. Look at me. I'm happy. Now, how does that feel? You think that would work really well for you? You've just been evicted from your house? Oh, don't worry. Look at me. I'm happy. Be happy. Just ignore the problems. It doesn't work, does it? Perhaps you heard the song, more recent song, Where the Boat Leaves From by Zach Brown Band. It said this, get away to where the boat leaves from. It takes away all your big problems. You got worries, you can drop them in the blue ocean. But you got to get away to where the boat leaves from. I'll just sail off into the ocean, you know. That will remove all of your big problems. These are all catchy songs, but they propose that we deal with heart troubles by ignoring them or pretending that they don't exist. But these sorts of escapes don't really result in confidence when facing very big problems that won't just go away like that. The only hope we have in such situations like that is to look to someone who is bigger than the problem. To look to someone bigger than the problem. You can't just ignore the problem. You must look to someone beyond the problem, someone who can deal with the problem, who can solve problems that we cannot. And so so instead, our words as Christians should not be, don't worry, be happy, but don't worry, trust God. Don't worry, trust God. You know, one of the biggest problems when confronting circumstances that are overwhelming is that we think too much of the circumstances and we think too much about our inability to handle it rather than looking to him who is bigger than it all. Heart troubles are healed by resolving that we will trust the Lord and look to Him throughout the struggle. While the battle is raging around us, we can ask the Lord to guard and protect our heart, to not allow the noises and the tumult to enter into our hearts, to ask Him to help quiet our minds, 
You know, that phrase, be still and know that I am God. Understand that phrase, it, it doesn't mean, stillness is not some sort of passivity. Like just, you know, chill out and it's going to be okay. This be still and know that I am God is an active, purposeful belief in the Lord. How does someone be still and know that He is God? How, how do we do that? It sounds great, but how do you do it? Well, I think part of what it means to be still and to know that He is God is to rehearse God's commands, to remember His promises, to contemplate His greatness, to trust in His goodness. Recognize this. Don't be stressed. Still, quiet down and think about God. Know that He is God. Know Him who is God. The One who is sovereign. The One who is good. The One who is great. The One who never breaks a promise. The One who is faithful even when we are faithless. Matthew Henry said, The joy of faith is the best remedy against the griefs of the senses. Faith is the tried and true remedy for trouble of heart. Isaiah 26.3 You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. Jesus tells his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The mood of the Greek verbs there um, can be translated one of two ways. Either Jesus is saying, you do believe in God, you you do believe in me. Or, as commands, believe in God. Believe also in me. Or it could be some combination. You believe in God. Now believe also in me. But any one of those phrasings I think is very plain. What Jesus is telling his disciples is, you can trust me just like you trust my Father. Just as God the Father has proved himself time and time again throughout the history of his people. He has done good toward his people. He has walked with them through all their trials. You can trust God. He has a proven track record. Jesus is saying, you can trust me too. I have that same track record. I will never prove myself unfaithful. You can trust me in the coming days. Even as the days get turbulent, even when things might look the darkest, Jesus says, I will never let you down. Look to me. Spurgeon said it this way, Faith is the double cure of trouble. For it delivers altogether from the trouble, and at the same time, it helps us to find sweetness in it, as long as we have to endure it. You know what Spurgeon is saying? He's saying two things here. This is one, faith is the double cure, because... In the first place, it reminds us that the troubles won't last. I mean, eventually, when we die, all troubles will be gone. And we'll go to be with our Lord forever. So we have that hope. But it also informs our present struggle. Knowing where we're headed informs how we deal with the present. And those commands that were given by Jesus so many years ago are still true today. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. Let me also make a quick point here. It is not just the fact that someone believes that's important. It's not just have faith. It's who you believe in that's important. Believe in God. Believe in me, Jesus says. It's the object of our faith that is so important. I can believe in this chair to help me out of my troubles, but it's not going to help me. That faith is empty and vain. But believing in God, believing in Jesus, that's got real power because of the one that I'm trusting. Our God is infinite in power. He's infinite in wisdom and goodness. He knows what's best for us. 
He's working all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God is our refuge and our strength. He's an everlasting or ever-present help in trouble. If God is for us, who can be against us? We can trust God. He's all-sovereign. He's all-loving. He's all-good. He's unchanging. He is faithful. He is gracious. He is compassionate. You can trust Him. You can also trust God the Son. He died for our sins and arose for our justification. He ever lives to make intercession for His children. He holds on to us and He will never let go of His children. Which leads us to our second assurance that Jesus gives to help those with heart trouble. Assurance number two, Jesus says, I will bring you home. I will bring you home. A couple of things we can say about that. First of all, you will not be abandoned. He's saying you're not going to be abandoned. He gives here further reasons to quiet his disciples' fears. He's providing them with a glimpse into future blessings that their minds can dwell upon. Why do you think the Bible says so much about heaven? (laughs) It's to help us through the struggles of this life. How do you get through a tough final or a paper at school? You think past the final and paper to something greater, right? How do we get through the struggles of life? There's something greater to come. And in this case, Jesus gives them something for their minds to dwell on. He tells them you won't be abandoned. Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to bring you to myself. Can't make a play on words here. Jesus, his departure was not for good in the sense of being for forever. But his departure was for good in the sense of a beneficial blessing to them. It wouldn't be for good in the sense of forever, but it would be for good in the sense of the benefit, the result that would happen as a result of Jesus going away. The disciples that very night might desert Jesus, but that night would not last forever. The dark would give way to great light. The separation would not be forever. Jesus would bring all of his own safely home to a home that he's preparing for them Part of the disciples' fear and worry was the thought that Jesus was leaving them. But Jesus' departure would be ultimately for their good. He tells us his plan didn't involve coming to earth, dying, rising again, to then leave his own apart from him. He came to actually redeem them, and he came to actually bring them all the way home. Which brings us to our second sub-point here. You won't be left homeless. You won't be abandoned, and you won't be left homeless. You won't be left alone, and you won't be left without a place to dwell. Jesus would bring all of His own to His Father's home. A place with many dwelling places, He says, many rooms. Were it not so, Jesus says, I would have told you. If it wasn't that way, I would have told you. He sincerely loves his children. He's not going to mislead them or leave them with unrealistic expectations. If he says, you're going to be with me forever, he means it. He's not going to just set that up and leave it out there. He's going to actually bring it to pass. If what was to come would leave out Jesus' followers, he would have told them. And what is to come will be truly amazing. The blessedness of heaven is described in a multitude of metaphors in the Bible. It's likened to the vastness of a country. It's likened to the populace of a city, to the organization of a kingdom, to the beauty of a paradise, and to the security of one's father's home. Jesus is saying, trust me. 
What's to come will be the truest homecoming ever. You'll be brought to a place specially prepared for you. It's been said that it was Jewish betrothal custom that when a man was betrothed to be married to his soon-to-be bride, they were legally bound, and that man went off back to his father's house to busily prepare a house for his bride. Sometimes actually literally building a room onto his father's house as he prepared to get his bride. You can bet a bridegroom's efforts and labors to prepare a place for his bride was full of joy. Every moment spent in preparation would be a delight in anticipation of the coming marriage. The time when the bridegroom would go and get his bride. I remember purchasing our house um, just a few, kind of like about a few weeks before Lee and I got married. I was still living with my mom at the time, and whenever I had spare moments, I was running over to the house and painting all the walls and getting things ready. Whenever there was a spare moment, and it was hard work, yeah, but it was full of joy and anticipation and excitement because I couldn't wait until the day when I'd marry Leah and bring her home to our new house. You see, the difficulty of work was nothing compared with the joy of what was to follow. Perhaps some of you have experienced, either by seeing or by having done it yourself, the phenomenon of nesting. When a woman, or sometimes her husband, starts to nest and get ready for a new little life to come into their, their home, much preparation is done. And yeah, there's probably moments of stress associated. But there's also just a tremendous joy in the thought that there's going to be a new little one coming into this home. Jesus is tapping into a practice that his disciples would have been familiar with. He says, don't be troubled. Know that my departure will be for your good. And guess what? I'll have a place especially made for you. A room in my father's house. Note that the afterlife is not some sort of ethereal, you know, combination of all of our essences into some mass and glob. There will be distinct personhood. We'll be given resurrected bodies and particular dwellings in our Father's house. Remember the Holy of Holies, that place where the high priest would go in only one time a year for just a few moments, and God forbid he might sin or do something like that while inside of the Holy of Holies? Remember Jesus' death and resurrection and the tearing of the veil from top to bottom being given access to our Father. And can you imagine that one day we will live in our Father's house? We'll be in our Father's house. God has never placed His people somewhere where He has not first prepared for them. Think about it. Eden. He did not place Adam and Eve on an unprepared piece of dry ground. After having created the world, He made and fashioned a special garden, a special place to place Adam and then to fashion Eve. For them to live, move, and exist, and to live in relationship with one another and with Him, and to exercise dominion over the creation. Think about the promised land. Even the way in which God gives the promised land to His people, they don't take it all at once. They take it over a period of time, because all the stuff that's in there then is prepared for them to utilize. So the new heavens and new earth will be specially fitted for God's people. Have you ever seen the show Home Extreme Makeover? It's gone, um, it's no longer playing. I think it ended in 2012 or something like that. But I remember seeing a couple of episodes. There was tremendous displays of generosity shown towards helping people who were in pretty tough situations, living in impoverished houses and other difficulties. 
So a group of builders would come in all together and in a couple of days completely like redo the entire house, sometimes leveling it to the ground and just starting all over completely. The homes were constructed that were constructed were not merely sturdy and durable and functional, but they were beautiful and they were personalized. The workers looked for ways to highlight different particular talents and interests in the adults or in the kids. Was one of the fun things of the reveal is like, what are they going to do with this, you know, kid that likes skateboarding? What's his room going to look like? And, you know, um, this kind of thing. It was fun to watch that because they gave them not only a space to work and explore, but to rest and relax and to have fun. Some of what captured the attention of those watching was the above and beyond way that these workers went about showering these families with blessings. And they would have this, you know, move that bus thing. You who've seen that know that phrase. And the bus would move, and everybody standing there on the outside looking in. They'd be, you know, some be shouting and jumping up and down. Other ones reduced to tears and to crumpled masses and heaps. Just so thankful. Now, if we can do things like that when we cooperate and use modern technological advancements, what do you think Jesus is doing for his bride, the church? What can the Son of God do to prepare a dwelling place for the church? What happens when one who is unlimited in resources and power and knowledge sits about preparing a place for his loved ones? Remember, this is the one through whom the universe was created. This is the one through whom the earth that we stand on was fashioned and made. The one who created the oceans and all the marine life the skies and all of the birds, the land and plants and animals that dwell upon it. This is He who formed the sun and the moon and the stars. One who calls them all by name. When He promises that He's going to prepare a place for us, please don't read that phrase too quickly. But let's sit there and meditate upon it. He's going to prepare a place for us. I'm sure our imaginations cannot begin to fathom what's in store for those whom God loves and he sent his son to die for. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him also give us freely all things? You won't be left homeless. And third, you won't be forgotten. You'll not be forgotten. Certainly, if this is what Jesus is engaged in, there is no way that he's forgotten about us. Does a bridegroom forget about his bride while he's preparing a place for them to live? Does a mother forget about her baby while she's nesting and preparing a place for the baby? The separation that's experienced is only temporary, and our homecoming will be forever. You see, while Jesus was here on earth, he had no place to lay his head. So we too, on this earth, are sojourners. We're pilgrims. This is not our home. But in our Father's house, we will be welcomed home to stay. That's why Jesus even says, while you have opportunity, tell others about me. Tell others about the gospel, that you might be welcomed in by them to the eternal dwellings that you will all be living in. You know, the hospitality that we'll receive in heaven will be nothing like we've ever experienced. I remember the first time that I went on a cruise with my wife. And I remember experiencing how people like, you know, put out the red carpet and all the rest. There was food literally everywhere. There were warm greetings. There were smiles everywhere. 
Even our room was freshened up morning and evening, complete, complete with mints on the pillow and origami-style towel animals. You've, if you've been on a cruise, you've perhaps experienced that before. But Jesus tells us he's gone before us to prepare a place for us. Now, I know that time is no limit on God's power, but just for fun, think about it this way. How long did it take God to create the earth? You're right, six days, six literal 24-hour period, right? Six days, and he rested on the seventh. How long has Jesus been gone? And what has he been doing? He tells us he's gone to prepare a place for us. I wonder what he can do with 2,000 years. I wonder what it will be like. You see, while Jesus is preparing the place for us, he's left the Holy Spirit to prepare us for the place. You see, both things are happening here. Jesus is preparing a place for us, but he also has to prepare us for the place. This is why Jesus must leave his disciples. He must go and die on the cross. Because as wonderful as heaven is, we wouldn't be fit for it if Jesus hadn't died. If Jesus hadn't shed his blood, there would be no forgiveness of our sins. We couldn't come into the presence of a holy God as sinners. So Jesus not only prepares a place for us, but he prepares us for the place. And he's left the Holy Spirit to continually sanctify us, to work in and through us, and to call other lost sinners to repentance and into the family of God. You see, we deserve hell. But by Jesus' accomplished mission, he took what we deserved. He took God's wrath upon his own shoulders. And he gave us what we don't deserve. He gave us God's blessing. He gave us the hope of eternal life and a place in heaven with him forever. That's what heaven really is anyway, right? Joy in the Father. The joy in heaven will be the fact that we brought to be with Jesus. We'll be where he is. That's, that's what heaven's all about. Luther said, I'd rather be in hell with Christ than be in heaven without him. Alcorn said, a place with Christ cannot be hell, but only heaven. A place without Christ cannot be heaven, only hell. And don't miss what's implied in this whole discussion. If Jesus is saying, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, then what does that mean by implication? That he's not still in the grave. That he rose again. He resurrected. The only reason why Friday is good Friday is because he rose again on Sunday. Had he not risen again, Friday would not be good news for us. Jesus says, everything's going according to plan. I'm going away. My trip will result in a glorious consummation. I'm going ahead of you to prepare you a a forever home. I'm coming back for you. You won't be abandoned. You won't be left homeless. And as J.C. Rowell says, those who enter heaven will find that they'll neither be unknown nor unexpected. There will be no unexpected visitors to heaven. All who come to heaven are expected. All of them, there's a place prepared for them. And you won't be unknown. You will be known. That third assurance that Jesus gives us is set up by a little bit of dialogue. Jesus says, and where I'm going, you know the way. He's saying, you have nothing to worry about. You know where I'm headed. And you're ensured a place there with me because you know the means to entrance of that place. You know where I'm going and you know how to get there. This prompts Thomas to say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? He's saying, I mean, in order to know how to get there, I need to know where you're going first. I don't even know where you're going. So how can I know the way? You say that I know the way, but I don't even know where you're going. Like, yeah, you know the way to get there, but I don't know where we're headed. Where are you going, Jesus? He's asking. 
We can't follow if we don't know where you're headed. This is where Jesus then makes his famous reply. This is a verse that is often seen by itself because it's so clear in the exclusive claim of Christianity. I myself, Jesus says, I myself am the way and the truth and the life. By the way, definite articles in the Greek before each of those words. The way, the truth, the life. And then he adds on to that. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you also know my Father. From now on you know him and have seen him. You see, everything points to Jesus here. We must go to Him, for He is the one and only way, truth, and life. Pete said it this way. Every sinner has a threefold need. We have a threefold need. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be illuminated, our minds open to the truth. And we need to be regenerated. We need to be given new hearts to believe. So we need to be reconciled to God the Father. We need to have our minds opened to the truth. And we need to be regenerated, given a new heart, be born again. And that threefold need is perfectly met with Jesus, our Savior. He is the way to the Father. He is truth incarnate. He is life to those who believe on Him. Thomas didn't understand Jesus was speaking here of spiritual eternal destinies. The place is heaven And ultimately, the new heavens and new earth. And the way is Jesus. The place is my Father's home. And the way is me. That's why Jesus can say, you know the way, because you know me. Knowing Jesus, because he is the way. Here's our assurance number three. I am everything you need. I am everything you need. Jesus, first of all, is the way amidst a world of dead ends. He's the way amidst the world of dead ends. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, all roads lead to Rome. Heard that one before? All roads lead to Rome. The idea that when all the the roads were being built in the Roman Empire, ultimately everything was to travel back to Rome, which is the central hub of culture and civilization and leadership and all the rest. All All roads lead to Rome. But people have sometimes utilized that phrase in reference to God, saying all roads lead to God. I think that that statement needs at least a two-part response. First of all, in one sense, they're right. All roads do lead to God because there is only one God. And every man must give an account of himself before that one God one day. He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof of this by raising him from the dead. So all men will one day come before God. But... There is only one road that results in eternal life. All roads in some sense lead to God because you're going to have to deal with Him one day. There will be no escaping Him. And His judgment will be perfect. But there is one road that leads to eternal life. All the rest result in eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. Only one road will cleanse you of your sin. Only one road will give you right standing before God, clothed in Jesus' perfect righteousness. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. The sinner could not come into God apart from the person of God's Son coming out to the sinner. We couldn't come in apart from Jesus coming out to get us. You see, God is a personal, relational God. And the means to fix our estrangement from Him 
is through a living fellowship with the person, Jesus Christ, who lives in indissoluble union with God the Father. It's by being united to Christ that we then have union with God the Father. In Jesus, God and man meet. Jesus the God-man. In Jesus the God-man, God and man meet. As man, Jesus died for the sins of those who trust in Him. And as God, He rescued us. Jesus has reconciled sinners to the Father. Jesus is the true way of life. Other ways may seem right to a man, but all of them lead to death and destruction apart from Jesus. You see, Jesus alone is the door. He's the ladder. He's the path. He's the way by which we can draw near to God. Through His blood, we have access to God's presence. Without Him, there would be nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment. Those who are not in Christ, that's all that they have. But those who are in Christ, they have been forgiven and set free. Jesus is the truth in a world of lies. Jesus is the truth in a world of lies. He is the truth. He is the whole substance of what is required for us to know for true salvation and understanding. Without Him, we grope about in darkness. Jesus came as the true light of the world. He provides us with proper understanding, proper perspective of the world around us, of ourselves, and of our need for salvation. Truth is not found in a system of man-made thought. Truth is found in a person. Truth is found in Jesus. In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 There has been a significant shift in our culture's approach to truth. We see the effects of relativism. The idea that, you know, all truth is just relative. And how that's infiltrated even the church today. There's been a tendency to compromise solid, inerrant, immovable, biblical truth. There's a pressure to conform to the patterns of the world and put forward Jesus as merely a way, as a truth, as a life, rather than the way. Jesus is presented as one solution to life's problems, one among other alternatives. Well, try out Jesus, and if it doesn't work, try out this person or that person or this thing or that thing. Some may say, in a gradation of help, that Jesus is the best Savior, but still merely one among others. See, all of this world is searching for a Savior. Everyone's searching for an answer to their problems. But the only true answer is Jesus. Some some others argue that, yeah, Jesus is the only way, but many are saved who never knew Him. They don't know Him, but they're still saved somehow. Much of this all stems from some strange intolerance that our culture has for exclusive claims. We've commented on this contradiction present in our culture before. Our world praises tolerance, but is extremely intolerant of anyone who says, this is the only way. As soon as you make that statement, then there's a problem. Note this. You can talk about God in public discourse, right? And people are normally fine with that. But you start talking about Jesus, all of a sudden there's a problem. Because people have made God into anything they want to be. And for that matter, today, many have made the same thing with Jesus as well. Jesus is the truth in a world of lies. N.T. Wright said it this way, Within the Western world of the last two centuries or so, this saying of Jesus has become one of the most controversial. I am the way and the truth and the life. How dare he, people have asked. 
Isn't this the height of arrogance to imagine that Jesus or anyone else was the only way? Wright continues by explaining that that argument doesn't work. If you dethrone Jesus, in his place you enthrone something else. The belief that all religions are really the same sounds nice and democratic, though the study of religions quickly shows that that isn't the case. What you're really saying, if you claim that they're all the same, is that none of them are more than distant echoes, distorted images of reality. You're saying that reality, God, the divine, is remote and unknowable, that neither Jesus, nor Buddha, nor Moses, nor Krishna gives us direct access to it. In other words, if you say all the religions are basically the same, you're saying none of them are right. None of them are right. Jesus and the entire Bible, for that matter, makes an exclusive claim. There is only one. There is one and only one true and living God, the creator, sustainer, and king of the universe. And he has acted decisively in history to rescue sinners from their sin and its dreadful consequences, death. So the real question is just, what is true reality? And who should be trusted in describing it? Is it arrogance or pride for me to say Jesus is the only way, if it is true? (laughs) Who's really the one who's sitting in arrogance? The one who takes God at his word and humbly submits to it? Or the one who puts his own ideas or thoughts above the thoughts of God? Who's the one who's arrogant? Romans 1 clears it up. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. Can I just make a quick side note? Now, while the claim that Christianity is the only true way to God is itself not arrogant, but humble, I can say that we can adopt a wrongful manner in sharing that truth with others. See how Jesus spoke and acted. The message he proclaimed in boldness, but he always acted out in love and compassion and humility. So it should be for all of us who have been saved by God's marvelous grace. None of us deserve this love. None of us earned our salvation. We're all sinners saved by grace. We're graced by God now to share that news with others. So we're to humbly, yet boldly, proclaim the gospel. Yeah, the message we proclaim is an offense to this world. It always has been. We claim, make statements like, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And there's only one Savior. It's Jesus, Him and Him alone. That's offensive in our culture. But that's the truth and they need to hear it. The message we proclaim is an offense to those who are perishing. But we must not be ourselves offensive. We must speak truth in love, as Jesus himself did. But we do not do a loving thing when we blunt the reality of the exclusivity of the gospel. A man can only be saved by Jesus. If we tell them something else, it's not only a lie, but it's unloving. For nothing else will save them. Al Mohler said, We preach one God, one Christ, one gospel. Jesus is the only way. We proclaim a monotheistic and mono-redemptive message. There is one God and there is only one way to that God. And that is through His Son, Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, Acts 4.12. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which they may 
be saved. Jesus is the incarnate revealer of the Father. He alone is the proper object of faith. He alone is the one that we trust. Lastly, we see Jesus is the life for a world awaiting judgment. All of the attributes of God dwell perfectly in God the Son. And so He, as God, has life in Himself. He is the source and giver of life for His own. Again, Arthur Pink says, The one who is out of Christ exists, but he has no spiritual life. When the prodigal son came back to his father from the far country, the father said, This my son was dead and is now alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. John 3.18 He who believes in him is not judged, is Jesus He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus alone is our hope of forgiveness in life. In Jesus alone we have life, abundant, everlasting, eternal life. Abiding in Him is life and fruitfulness. And apart from Him is death and barrenness. In the words of Al Mohler, If all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, the Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion and need and hope, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules or a way of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self for crying out loud, Oprah will do. But if we need a Savior, only Jesus will do. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Christianity is distinctive because of its exclusive claims. No other religion or spiritual movement calls its adherence to salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You can stack up the multitudes of false religions and you'll hear the repetitive theme. Man achieves enlightenment or secures salvation or achieves nirvana or enters into the afterlife by his own good works. The gospel, on the other hand, explains man's true condition. That he's unable to work his way out of, his, of the pit he's in. We're incapable of saving ourselves. We're dead in need of being given life. Our hearts are stone cold. We're in need of a transplant. Our eyes are glossed over and our minds are darkened. We need not only light, but we need the ability to see given to us. We need a miracle. We need God to reach down and save us, to give us hearts to believe, to give us eyes to see. And it is not some cooperative effort that's going on here. We need someone to save us from beginning to end. We need someone who's willing to stoop low and redeem us. Someone to love us while we were unlovely. Someone to rescue us and redeem us while we were rebels spitting in His face. We needed this hero to take our place and to die in our stead. And then to conquer the enemies that we're incapable of defeating. Sin, Satan, death. This Jesus alone has done. Again, truly distinctive of Christianity. We don't serve a dead leader, but a risen Savior. Yes, He died, but the linen wrappings couldn't bind Him. The ground couldn't keep Him, and the stone couldn't hold Him. 
Death died when meeting Jesus, the Prince of Life. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Here is where our truest comfort is found. And you see, we can pray the words of Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We can pray that because Jesus died and rose again. He's gone before us. Believe in Him. He's everything you need. In Him, you can come home to God the Father. You'll be granted eternal life for forgiveness of your sins. For dear friend, there is no better or truer comfort than having Him. If you have Him, then He is the help for all heart troubles. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your marvelous grace and mercy. We are beset with many troubles, many trials. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by them and swallowed up in them. But sometimes we've made a false diagnosis, thinking that all of our problems are outside of us, when in reality our biggest problem is within us. That is our own sin, our own depravity, our own need of heart change. Lord, I thank You that You know our deepest need. You know what's aching in our hearts. And You provided the glorious news of the Gospel to save us. Lord, I know that in this very room there may be many who don't know You. I pray even in these moments. I know it's not by eloquence of my speech that a person is saved. It is by a work of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned, it requires a miracle. And it's crazy to think that you work through something like preaching to bring about your purposes. But it is your power that saves. It is your power that transforms. So we even ask in these quiet moments... Should there be any in this room who does not know you, that you would grant them eyes to see and a heart to believe, that they would cry out to Jesus and they'd find in Him everything that they need. Lord, we, in the time between now and Your return, we pray for redoubled help in our times of need. Cause our minds to dwell often on heaven to think of the fact that we will not be abandoned, but we will be brought home. And we brought home to be with You where You are. And since You're everything, that's all we need. Remind us of that. And may that inform the way we walk in and out of every day. Pray that You would glorify Yourself. In Jesus' name. Amen.